0: Good to see everyone that's in the room this morning and glad to be joined by those of you that are online. I wanna start actually by reading a passage of scripture that you haven't been given. This comes from the Old Testament, prophet Ezekiel. This um, angelic being takes him to different places and shows him different things and he takes him to the temple and out of the threshold of the temple, water was flowing down. This is from Ezekiel forty-seven. And um, they had eastward, and the man with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. So there's this picture of the temple of God and a river is flowing out of it. It starts out very small, just this trickle. And by the time you're a little over a mile away, it's this vast river that you have to swim. You can't ford the river. And here's what happens as a result. Um... The angelic being said, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. That's the Dead Sea, which is the large body of water to the east of Jerusalem that has no life in it and only has water flowing in, none out. It is incredibly um, filled with minerals and it's useless for almost anything. Um, It enters the sea and when, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. The Dead Sea will turn fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. There will be very many fish, for this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, and they'll spread their nets. And he goes on to describe how this this river flowing out of the temple of God will refresh everything. It's interesting, um, many of us, I'm sure probably all of us, have heard of the the Dead Sea Scrolls. They come from a place called Qumran, which is just off of the Dead Sea to the east of Jerusalem. And um, there was a community there during the New Testament era. And one very significant theory of why they located there was because of this passage. They were looking for God's renewal. And they put their community right there because when the river came, it was going to flow right through their yard. And they wanted to be front and center with the renewal God was bringing from this river. In our desert land, it's, it's no surprise that God would use the imagery of water to talk about how he's going to bring blessing, how he's gonna bring renewal, how he's going to restore life. And he does that over and over again in the Old Testament, a whole bunch of different places. Ezekiel's just one place. There's a verse in Zechariah I wanna have in our minds as well, talking about the day that God does his great new work. And it says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea, again, the Dead Sea, half of them to the Western Sea. There's this picture that living waters are going to come along and, and change everything. Water was this um, essential, non-negotiable part of life. I mean, it's true for all of us, but if you live in a desert land and you're subsistence farmers, for the most part you, you got to have water. And the rain cycle is what is so critically important. And when there's no rain, there's nothing to drink and there's no crops. And so it's this absolute sense of this is how God is going to sustain us. We're absolutely dependent upon him. For water, and, and so it's no wonder that that image also then expands into God's river flowing that's going to bring restoration and, and um, health and everything that we would want as God's people. One day, God's going to fix what's broken, and he pictures that with this image of water. Ezekiel um, lived at a time that was anything but Refreshing. He was a prisoner, if you will. He was an exile in the land of Babylon. And the visions that he has in the book of Ezekiel take place in Israel, and he has to be transported in the vision back to Israel to see what's going on. And much of the visions, many of the visions are very disturbing. Uh, Probably the most disturbing comes early in the book where the glory of God literally departs from his people. Ezekiel is taken to the temple, and he can see in God's temple they are worshiping pagans. It's this horrible, with pagan gods, it's this horrible, horrible um, state of affairs that has come about. That's why God's judgment has come. That's why most of the people by this time are actually in exile in Babylon. And when Ezekiel sees this image, the other thing that he sees is he sees that the Shekinah glory, this cloud that God manifested in himself in, that stayed in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, it rises from there and it moves to the edge of the temple and then to the edge of the city and then to the Mount of Olives as it leaves. And the picture is both symbolic and literally saying God is, in a sense, departing from his people. He made it possible to dwell among you, but you have not kept your covenant commitments and I can't live among you anymore. And now it's a season of judgment. It's a season of waiting as well. Because the book of Ezekiel goes on and there's promises in there. Probably the most famous is the Valley of Dry Bones, where God takes him to this valley and there's all these bones. And he says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. And then He says, prophesy to the bones, share the message, and as that happens, the bones begin to reform, and we have that spiritual that we like to sing, and that's a great song, but the picture is God, through his word and through his prophet, is saying, there's going to be a restoration. This is going to be amazing. By the time we get to Ezekiel 47, he's talking about this river flowing out of the temple one day that is going to bring restoration and restore and and health, but not yet. Ezekiel dies in captivity, never seeing that. Generations pass. The control of Israel passes from Babylon to Persia. And when the Persians are now their overlords, finally they're allowed, a number of them are allowed to go back to Israel, but it's a very ragtag remnant that goes back, and it's a very difficult place that they live. And that's where Zechariah, the second passage that I read, he's one of the prophets. God actually sends two prophets to, to prop up the leadership of this remnant that's gone back because the, the high priest is is a man named Joshua and he's not up for the task. And the and the governor who's part of the princely line is a man named Zerubbabel and he's not up to the task. And God sends these prophets to encourage them and strengthen them. And he sends Zechariah and Haggai to support them and to help the people stay on task. The first order of business is rebuilding the temple. And when they lay the foundation stones for the temple, the book of Ezra tells us there's this cacophony that happens because many of the people are excited. The temple of God is now being rebuilt. There's a place where God can again be among his people. And yet those that are old enough to remember the temple from before just start weeping and wailing because it is so pitiful. It is so pathetic. Haggai tries to prop them up and encourage them, and he says, there will be a latter glory that exceeds the former glory, so just be courageous, be strong, and do the work. Zechariah is telling Zerubbabel, don't despise the day of small things. This may look like nothing, but you will complete this work. It will be a work of grace that you will accomplish It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's where that verse comes from, Zechariah 4. That's the picture. That's the place where they're living. They're waiting for God's promises. God makes so many promises through his prophets. And he often uses this imagery of water as a a picture of his power and of his renewing work. And even of the Holy Spirit. There are a number of passages that that picture water as, as a symbol for the Holy Spirit that will one day be poured out on people. And yet, hundreds of years pass, and all they have is this increasing longing, this increasing thirst for the waters of God, this increasing need, this increasing disparity between the life that they see and the life that they think God is promising, that God has said, I will bring this, and they're going, how long? When is this going to happen? Oh, Lord, is it now? The Persian Empire gives way to the Greek Empire as Alexander conquers them, and now the Jewish people are under Greek rule, and his empire fractures when he dies, and two of the generals in his empire take two parts, one with a capital in Syria, one with a capital in Egypt, and Israel for the next several hundred years becomes this ping-pong ball back and forth between these two great world powers, still waiting, still wondering. It's a hard life. They are an enslaved and oppressed people. They don't have their own rule. They don't have their own freedoms. The temple's been rebuilt, and it's a pathetic little temple compared to what they had under Solomon. There's no reference to the Shekinah glory of God ever returning, so it appears to just be an empty shell. The Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments was the the seat where God would manifest his presence. It has disappeared. And they're waiting, they're waiting for God to do something, they're waiting for him to fulfill the promise, and it goes on for hundreds of years. There's no prophets, nobody's giving them the word of the Lord, the new message, there's very little direct evidence of God, there's a few scattered miracles, these reminders that God is at work, but from a distance. And there's this constant thing in the back of their minds, where's God, what's he doing, when's When's the river gonna flow, when's the restoration gonna happen? Where's God and when is he gonna quench the thirst that I have in my soul for things to be right? During this same period of time, they were continuing their regular worship patterns and the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three big feasts that they did every year. It came in September, October. It was the last one, it was the one where they would celebrate the final harvest. And it was a time of thanksgiving. It was a a celebration. But it was also a time of concern because it hadn't rained in months and months. The rainy season ends in May. It's been dry. The sea, the big body of water on the east is the Dead Sea. It's too salty and, and filled with minerals to be of any use. The body of water on the west is the Mediterranean Sea. It's ocean. It's salty. It's not any use. The Jordan River that runs down the center of the country is very small and insignificant. If you lived up in Galilee, there was a beautiful lake, Sea of Galilee. That was good. But for most of the country, it was hard. It was hard. Maybe you could find a spring. The geology allowed there to be springs places. And so we read about this in the scripture. But one of the main strategies was to dig deep pits all over the land that would collect the water in the fall when the rains would finally start and then the snows in the highland and would melt. Those would fill up. They're called cisterns. That's where Joseph was thrown by his brothers when they sold him into slavery. They threw him into an empty cistern. That's where Jeremiah was imprisoned when he sank down into the muck. It was late in the season. There was no water left. It was just this slimy mud. It was a cistern. It was a land filled with expectation waiting but totally dependent on God doing something. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was at that pivot point, the rains are supposed to be just around the corner, that was a major focus and a major prayer. So somewhere along the way, a water ceremony developed that captured their two... Longings that are pictured in water. One was just water itself, rain, R A I N, and the other is the presence and power of God, rain, R E I G N, his kingdom coming in their world. And these images got mixed together in this ceremony that they would do during the Feast of Tabernacles, a water ceremony that we'll get to in just a minute. That arose sometime during the period of time between the Greeks and New Testament. During that time, the people got fed up enough with the foreign rule that eventually they rebelled. And for a short time, they had independence, but their rulers were decreasingly godly and increasingly um, compromised with the culture around them. And then Rome came in, and that squashed that. So by the time we get to the New Testament, we have a people who have been under an oppressive rule, almost without exception for 600 years. We have a people that have been without the presence of God seemingly in in the Shekinah glory and the the Ark of the Covenant for 600 or more years. We have a people that have been waiting for these promises to be fulfilled about how God's going to work and how the latter days are going to bring new things, how he's going to pour out his spirit, how a river is going to flow out of the temple and bring restoration. A people that are thirsty for God to show up, to do something, to fulfill his promise, to change their lives. And they, the faithful, a lot of people don't stay faithful, but those that do continue to go up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate, to give thanks to God for what he has given and to cry out for what they need. The rain falling from the sky and the rain of God to change Everything. And that's when this water ceremony took place. The feast was seven days long. And on the first day, a huge crowd would gather in the temple precinct and the priest would bring a golden pitcher and they would hike from the, in front of the altar all the way down the, temp, the steps of the temple mound all the way down into the Old City, which is a very steep and arduous hike, to the Pool of Siloam and Gihon Spring where he would take up a pitcher full of water. And while he was doing that, the people gathered around would chant Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, looking to God to provide physical water and to provide his reign in the world that would change everything. It was a prayer of expectancy, a prayer of hope, looking for God to work. And then they would follow the priest all the way back up to the courtyard where he would pour the water out before the temple. They did that on the first day. The second day they gathered again. And marched down to the spring and filled the pitcher and chanted the prayer. And by the way, they were also praying psalms as they were heading back up to the altar. And he would pour out the water. The third day they would do the same thing. The fourth day they would do the same thing. The fifth day they would do the same thing. The sixth day they gathered. They marched down. They filled the pitcher, chanting, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then they would hike back up and he would pour it out before the altar on the seventh day, the last day, the great day of the feast. They would do this seven times in a row. Hike down, fill it up, hike up, pour it out. Hike down, fill it up, hike up, pour it out. Seven times. With this prayer, fill this picture from the wells of salvation. With this expectation that God would work somehow, not only to bring rain from the sky, but to bring his rain from the sky, to change the world, to fulfill the promises that he'd pictured in so many ways at so many times. Now, imagine yourself being in that group. Imagine yourself being in the parade. You live in some village. You've come into the, to the capital because you actually take your worship of God seriously, which means you're also looking for God to do something, and you're baffled, you're perplexed, and your heart is aching because he's not seeming to do that. You're, wanting, you're, you're so thirsty for him to fulfill his promise, for him to actually enact what the waters have symbolized, what you're awaiting... You're so thirsty for that. And you continue the process. It's not empty, but it is stark. I keep praying this year after year. I keep doing this year after year. God, where are you? Hundreds of years you haven't sent a prophet. Hundreds of years it doesn't seem anything's happening. Where's the progress? Where's the change? I'm looking for the rain from the sky to make it another year so I can come back and thank you for the crops that we've enjoyed this year. But I'm looking for your rain from heaven, for you to restore your presence, to bring back an intimate connection with your people, for you to restore your shalom, to make things right because they're not. We're oppressed, we're struggling, we're burdened, we're hurting. We're just barely making it. And then on the last day, the great day of the feast, to do that parade seven times. By the end, you're exhausted and just wanting God to speak, just wanting God to act. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's John 7, if you don't have your Bible open there, would you open there now? Or if you're on the app, that's starting in verse 37, taking a couple of verses from the center. We'll come back and pick up the context in a minute. But that's what happened. At that climactic moment, sometime after that final parade, in the midst of that hustling and bustling and jammed, temple precinct that's filled with worshipers from all over the country, hundreds, thousands of people have gathered. This was, as we understand, actually the most popular of the three feasts. People loved to go to this feast. The place is jammed. The expectations are high. The weariness is high. The question of where God is and what he's doing and what's next and is he ever going to keep his promises are high and in the middle of that Jesus stands and in a loud voice says if you are thirsty here I am and then to tie it in with the full expectation he says if you believe in me out of your heart will flow rivers of living water which is I'm bringing the spirit what you've been waiting for is beginning right now Are you still thirsty? What you've been longing for is right in front of you. I can satisfy that thirst. Will you come to me? We've been trekking through John and John is very redundant. Keeps saying the same thing again and again and again because life is redundant and we are slow. (laughs) Sometimes we need to hear the same thing again and again and again. The pattern of life continues to repeat. So John has given us this pattern over and over again and he shows it in all these different contexts saying, Jesus came into the world, light came into darkness, the creator entered creation, and he was rejected, and yet those who received him, everything was transformed, and he brought eternal life, life from heaven. Life not that just says, at this moment, I'm going to change your status before God, and now you have a place reserved one day when you die, but in the meantime, it's just kind of this big parenthesis, do the best you can, Uh, we'll see you on the other side eternal life is a different order of life that begins with a transfer of my status before God so that now there's this intimate connection possible. And then the Holy Spirit in this process indwells me and I have this intimate partnership with God. Earlier, Jesus said, you will abide in me and I will abide in you. And he's going to come back to that in John 15. There's this dynamic that's shifting all of life. That's what I've come to offer. I didn't just come to say, hey, one day you get to be with me. I came to say, I'm changing you right now and what I've promised, it's not coming fully. It's not coming fully until I rule in power and crush opposition, but it's coming genuinely. It's coming genuinely as I work in your life and invite you into what I'm doing in the rest of the world. Jesus says in a couple of chapters, we'll see this, I've come to give life and to give it to the full. Not just, hey, here's this spiritual experience that you can add to your kind of trophy case, you kind of checkbox, you're good. Now just go through life the way it's always been. It's like, no, I'm beginning the process that I promised you of old. I'm gonna do transforming things because the Holy Spirit, who is pictured over and over again and has been promised, is coming. And he can be yours. And he can be yours in abundance so that that transforming, vibrant life just bubbles out of you. Are you thirsty? Do you want my presence and my power in your life? Are you willing to come to me and trust? And the theme that goes through John is how many people scatter over that. In fact, in this passage, it's going to say, people are divided over Jesus. That's always the case. Even today, people are divided over Jesus. How do I respond to him? Well, for them, there were a whole lot of inadequate responses. Some were outright rejection, and some were, I just have my expectations, and I, I, I'm, I'm struggling here because you're not matching. You're, you're not being God the way I want you to be God. You're not being God the way I won't expect you to be God. I'm not sure you are God. I'm not sure... And ultimately, many of those people bail out. And then there's some who just come, surrender everything and say, I'm in with you. And they receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the spring of life that begins that transformation process. We've seen that again and again. Last week with Uche, it was Jesus' brothers who had their expectations. Well, if you're going to be Messiah, here's how you need to do it. And then there were the leaders who were basically rejecting So let's pick up this week and we'll see again how people are responding, which is good for us to check our own hearts yet again and say, how am I responding? Is my heart lined up in faith so that the presence and power of Christ can really be experienced? Or am I somehow dampening the Holy Spirit's work in my life? Or for some of us, perhaps even I don't have that relationship. I've never come to the place of repentance, surrendering and trusting. I don't know where I stand with God at all. Chances are if you don't know where you stand with God, you stand on the outside of his blessing and we'd love to talk to you because he loves you. He wants, Jesus came for you. He wants relationship with you. But you need to respond to him and we'd love to help you do that. Probably many of us have that relationship but we still need to keep checking how How are we engaging? Am I really thirsty for Jesus? Am I really looking for the Holy Spirit to work in my life? Or are other things getting in the way? Right, so here's what happens in this passage, verse 25, if you want to follow along. Picking up from, from where Uche left off last week. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? In a prior passage, Jesus said, they're trying to kill me. And people looked at him and said, you're nuts. Nobody's trying to kill you. What are you talking about? It's important to remember, Jesus is moving around and he's talking to different crowds. This is a crowd in Jerusalem. This is a crowd that lives in the place where the center of leadership is. And they know that the leaders actually are trying to kill Jesus. They get it. They've seen how these guys are responding. They understand they are plotting somehow to kill Jesus, which is why they're so stunned, because here Jesus is in a public place very openly teaching and doing so with impunity. Like, how can he do that? They ought to just squash him if they really think he's that bad. I mean, they've got the power. He doesn't. He's just this itinerant teacher from Galilee, Maybe he does a miracle here and there, but these are the guys with power. How can he just stand there with impunity and teach? And their answer is, well, maybe, (laughs) maybe they figured out he is the Messiah. Maybe that's actually the case, and so they're not killing him. That's not actually what's keeping Jesus safe. We'll see that in a minute, but that's what they say, and then immediately they dismiss that. Verse 27, but wait, 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 hold on. We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This, we know where this guy comes from. He can't be the Messiah, because the Messiah comes out of nowhere, which, by the way, is not actually a biblical teaching. It's a popular teaching of their day that they had just kind of assumed was biblical, which is just a quick caution. That happens all the time. Somebody says something, it's popular, we like it, and we just assume it's biblical, and it's not. Check it out. These people are taking a popular teaching and assuming this can't be the Messiah because we know where he came from and nobody will know where the Messiah came from. Now Jesus is gonna respond to them and he's not really gonna challenge them, he's gonna kinda answer them but mostly redirect them. So Jesus, verse 28, proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. In other words, he's saying, well, maybe kind of, sort of, you know where I come from, but do you really know? Do you really know what this is about? It's not even about geography. It's about a mission. Yeah, I come from Galilee, in a sense. And also, in a sense, we're going to find out I come from Judea but ultimately I come from God. I've come for a purpose and you're not understanding that. You don't really know me. You're not listening. Well, that offends them. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So there's a scattering of different responses. The people who were very interested in Jesus are now offended, and they're going to take matters into their own hands. The local government has put out an arrest warrant. They want him dead, and they're going to say, we'll help him out. We'll grab him. They thought Jesus was working with impunity because the the uh, leadership had changed their mind. They learned that's not true. They try to grab him, and they find out why Jesus is really working with impunity because it says they can't arrest him because it wasn't his time. In other words, God was protecting him. It was totally in his hand. What's interesting is it doesn't tell us why they can't arrest him, other than because God won't let him. Doesn't give us any of the mechanics. Did he disappear? Did a whole group of disciples gather around them and start swinging? Did uh, something distract them and take them away? Did they get frozen to the ground and they tried to move? And they, We don't know, we have no clue. And I think in that there's something useful to think about for just a minute because the real issue is it's God's plan. God will accomplish his plan. Sometimes, sometimes it's obvious how that's gonna happen and sometimes I have no clue. Sometimes it seems like it's impossible. Sometimes there's no explanation other than God does it. And if I'm really trusting God, I've got to be able to trust him in all of those scenarios. Most of life is genuinely lived in the area of be wise, plan well, structure, discipline, all those things matter. But following Jesus inevitably leads me to times and places where I can't make the pieces fit. I need to be careful, I'm actually following him. But even if I can't make the pieces fit, that's not really the point. If he's leading me, he is God. Jesus is safe, not because these guys are bumblers, they don't know how to arrest him. Jesus is not safe because a group of superheroes showed up, Captain America stood up before him and said, there's always somebody like you, come on. He doesn't do that, it's God. God protects Jesus. Because God's working out his plan. And God works out his plan in my life too. And sometimes the math doesn't actually work on the front end, but because God's in it, that that fixes it. So, his hour had not yet come. A lot of people do believe. And they're asking a question, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They actually don't understand fully about the Christ, right, the Messiah. There's a lot of debate. Some don't even think the Messiah will actually work miracles. Some think he will work a lot of miracles. Some think there's actually two messiahs plus one prophet. That's one of the major views of the time because that's the only way they could figure in their own minds how all of God's plan fit together. So there's the prophet like Moses, And he's going to work a lot of miracles because that's what Moses did. And then there's going to be a Messiah like Aaron that's going to do a priestly function. And then there's going to be a Messiah like David who's going to do a kingly function. And they don't understand God's got prophet, priest, and king all rolled up into the one Messiah standing right before them who doesn't look like anything they expect. And he's not ticking any of their boxes. And their problem is not that he's not measuring up. It's they've got the wrong boxes. And so, some drop their boxes and embrace Christ, and some are still struggling, and some actually have hardened. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. Muttering what? Muttering, wait, maybe this is the Messiah. Ooh, they don't like that. The Jewish leaders, which consisted of the Pharisees and of the priestly class, which would be the Sadducees, did not believe Jesus was Messiah. They didn't want him to be the center of attention. They didn't want anyone talking about him and they sure didn't want people saying, maybe he's the Messiah. Worst possible thing, they get really upset. In fact, so upset that the Pharisees and the Sadducees who never cooperate on anything, picture the Tea Party and AOC sitting down together and say, hey, let's form a new kind of coalition in Congress that's not gonna happen. They are so antithetical to one another They could never do it. And yet, because the Pharisees and the priests feel they have a common enemy who's a threat to them, they actually do partner. Look at what it says. Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They were given by the Romans a fair amount of kind of civil governing um, authority. And they had their own police force. They already had it. Because God said it up when He set up the temple, He said, some of the Levites will serve as the security for the tabernacle and later the temple. And so then as their authority broadened, they would just use the temple police to enforce their will other places. So they send temple police to arrest Jesus. That's important to understand because these are not mercenaries. These are not people who are like professional cops who don't understand deep theology. That's not the zone they're coming from. They are professional cops, but they're actually religious leaders. They're well-trained religious leaders who also have this function of policing and they're given the arrest warrant, go get Jesus. And then John pauses our narrative and focuses on what Jesus says. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus says, you won't be able to follow me. They mistake the issue for we don't want to follow you. Where do we want to go? Well, we don't want to go to the rest of the world. You know, they're really content where they are. They're really kind of arrogant about where they are. And even the other Jews who are scattered, the dispersion, it's like, yeah, okay, those are kind of, yeah. Is he going to go there? We're not going to follow him, that's for sure. You go talk to those people? You're going to go teach the rest of the Jewish world? You're going to go teach the Gentiles somewhere? Is that what he's talking about? I don't don't get what he's saying. It's in the middle of all that wrestling then that Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I promise that God is beginning to fulfill what he said by sending me, and when I complete this initial work, I will send the Spirit, and you will be transformed. Do you want that? Do you want that intimacy with God in your day-to-day life? Do you want the power of God flowing through you so that you're becoming a different you, the you that you're supposed to be, and you're enabled to live in this world for God, with God, by God. Do you want that? Do you want to see that restoration take place? Anyone who's thirsty, you can have that, because here I am. Then the arguments continue. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, no, this is the Christ. But some said, wait, wait is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. They can't figure out who he is. Some of them wanted to arrest him. They're just going to reject him altogether, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees said to them, why did you not bring him? We sent you to arrest him. You have authority. There's a whole bunch of you. There's one of him. What's going on? They're getting pretty upset. Why did you not bring him? The officer answered, no one ever spoke like this man. This is why it's important to understand who these guys are, right? It's not a a mercenary that's going, I don't know, it's some spiritual stuff, and I didn't, it's not my thing. It's not my jam. I don't know. I was confused, and I got so confused I didn't arrest him. It's like, no, we understand the stuff this guy's talking about. This is our bread and butter. We are religious leaders. We live in this world all the time, and nobody's saying the things this guy is saying. We'd better listen. We better not arrest him. We need to hear more. Well, the rest of the leadership gets really worked up over that. The Pharisees answered them. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Well, these Sadducees are at least questioning. This crowd does not know the law and is accursed. Right? Don't be like the rabble. Who cares what they think? This guy may appeal to them. You should be better than that. What are you thinking? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who is a leading Pharisee and a major influencer part of the leadership of their country. He stands up and he says, wait, 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 wait. Does our law, verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus isn't siding with Jesus. That would be overreading it. He's just saying, whoa, slow down, guys. We're all worked up here. We at least need to be fair. We haven't even heard this guy we're trying him and condemning him and wanting to get rid of him and we're not actually listening, shouldn't we at least let him talk to us? They respond even more poorly to that. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now at this point, they're just so mad. They're actually saying things that are untrue. Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. It's even possible that Elijah, the kind of definitive prophet, was from Galilee. Prophets do come from Galilee. The prophet, maybe they mean that, that prophet doesn't come from Galilee, but that's a reach because it doesn't say that. Moses just said there's a prophet coming like me. It doesn't say much more than that. They're just mad and they are, they're threatened. That's, that's the deal. God's coming into their world is threatening the life that they have chosen and they have got to squash that. So we see these two, actually three responses. Some people are listening and actually believing. We see other people who he's not meeting the expectations and ultimately leave him. And then there's the ones who have actually hardened their hearts and just keep doubling down on their resistance. Take a harder and harder line. When Jesus shows up, he's offering the ability to quench the thirst of anyone. They're all thirsty. But their responses are very varied, as are ours. That's why John writes this. It's important to rise above the actual happenings here. And remember, he wrote this to a group of believers, to a church, to people like us. John writes his gospel probably from the city of Ephesus where he is the pastor of their church to a mixed group, a lot of whom were Jewish, still are ethnically, a lot of whom had been Gentile and converted to Jewish practices because that made sense and now they're both Both groups are following Jesus and a lot of whom were just pagans who come to understand salvation is for them. And this group is reading it and one of the things that this passage does is we're supposed to read it through their eyes and there's a couple of times when it seems like John looks up from what he's writing and winks at him and says, don't miss this. See how they're missing Jesus and how they totally blew it. When they say, well, we know where he comes from and um, they mean he comes from Galilee. Everyone... Reading John's book would go, (laughs) no. He grew up in Galilee. He came from Bethlehem. He fulfilled the prophecy you guys are quoting. You missed it because you weren't listening. You were more interested in pushing your agenda than listening to his. Um, That's a case of irony. Another case of irony is when they're saying, well, where's he going to go? Is he going to go out to the dispersion? Talk to all the Gentiles? And the people that are reading it are a room full of dispersion Jews and Gentiles going, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, Not, not personally, but he sent his followers out and you guys thought that was crazy. You weren't listening, you missed it. And then the really dark one, I think, which would have been particularly painful for them to catch the irony, is when he says, where I am, you cannot come. When he's talking to them, he's saying, look, I'm going back to God. And you're, if you don't change your ways, you're going to die in your sins and you'll never see God. Tragic. But this, the question that we want to come back to and ask ourselves is is at the very center. Am I thirsty? Am I thirsty? Right? This is written for our benefit. Some of us need to come into relationship with God. Jesus has brought everything necessary. We just need to surrender and trust. And if you have that conversation in mind, let's have it, because we want to help you. For a lot of us, that's not really the issue. The issue is, as I live my life, do I stay thirsty for God? Does He stay the center? Does His kingdom, does His glory, does does the work of His Spirit define me? Is it my daily experience? Or have I started, have I started allowing or, or trying to allow other things to quench my thirst? They never will work. Uche asked last week, what are the things that you think about? And I've been thinking about this week. And a couple of categories that might be helpful. What are the things that you fantasize about? And what are the things that you fret about? Right? Now sometimes fantasies are just plain wrong. We, some people have fantasies that are sinful and, and if that's the case, you, you need to repent and turn away from that. But but sometimes we have fantasies that are in and of themselves fine. They're just, uh, they, wouldn't this be great? Wouldn't that be great? We call them dreams, we call them whatever. And here's the question, because Uche's question last week kind of ties in with where we're going this week. It, it, what is, what's really capturing your mind? What's really capturing your heart? And those things... Do they take over? Do I spend too much time, too much energy? Because here's what I suspect. I suspect that by looking at my own because I do have things that I dream of and it's like them. sometimes those take on too big a life. And, and, and what's the problem there is I'm looking to fulfill my thirst with the wrong thing. And actually, sometimes if you look deeper at that very thing, it's just pointing me back to God. Why do I want whatever it is that I'm longing for? It's because it gives me peace. It gives me joy. Well, that's found in God. It's a good need that I'm seeking to meet, but I'm seeking to meet it the wrong way. It might even be appropriate for me to have that thing, that experience, that time, that whatever, with God, but somehow it takes over. And I'm no longer thirsting for God. I'm no longer... With the psalmist who says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul longs after you. I'm longing after something else. What are the things that are your fantasies? And then what are the things that you fret about? Because fretfulness is another one of those, I think, windows into what, what we're really seeking to satisfy ourselves with. I have to be responsible, I have to work, I have to plan, I have to structure, I have to solve. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's a ton of work. Sometimes it takes coming back and coming back and coming back. But sometimes that takes on a life of its own. And that takes over. And suddenly I've become God and I've got to solve this. And my fretfulness is if this isn't fixed, I can't have peace. Or if this isn't fixed, I can't be secure. If this isn't fixed. And what it is is I'm saying. I'm no longer thirsting for God and I'm no longer thirsting for Christ and I'm no longer looking to have these things met by the Holy Spirit's vibrant work that is welling up within me because of my birthright and instead I'm chasing after these things my own. Jesus comes at the most dramatic time and he says, look, if you're thirsty, here I stand. Come and drink. I think he still says that today. The question is, do we we believe him? And will we trust him and we pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross, your resurrection, for the fact that you returned to heaven and sent your, your spirit to live in us. Thank you for that dynamic, Lord. So much of life is challenging and hard and we don't like it and we struggle and we want you to change things and all the time you're working within us if we let you. And we can anchor there, even when things continue to be hard, we can anchor there. May our thirst be tuned to your water. May that be what we're really seeking. May we keep coming back to that and to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.